Welcome to the Lake Show Life Podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Now, please welcome your hosts, Jason Reed and Daniel Preciado. Today we welcome on a very special guest, former journalist and New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman. He has a new book coming out Tuesday, September 22nd, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, in the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. Jeff, we appreciate you coming on. How you doing? I'm good. I wouldn't say I'm a former journalist. I would say I'm a former print journalist. <laughs> I like to think of books as still journalism, you know, so hopefully. Yeah, it's a little different I, nowadays. <laughs> yeah, very much. So. You yeah, didn't come yeah, up in the, uh, in the blog era. <laughs> exactly. I don't even know if blogs are really, if you think about it, even blogs are kind of obsolete now. You know, it's like. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, that's what we we call ourselves a blog, but it's more of like a sports blog. I don't know. It's changing every day, yep. the media landscape. Every so day. Um, before diving into the book, though, I kind of wanted to ask you this, you know, kind of talking about the media landscape. Uh, someone who wants to write a book in the future, that's actually on my bucket list. I'm, I'm like a fiction writer, though. At least that's what I want to be, like a, you know, a mm-hmm. cute little uh, kid's sports book or something. Um, what was that transition like, you know, going from being, you know, kind of a print, you know, journalist to being a long form kind of book writer? Um, it's interesting. I wrote my first book when I was wrapping up my career at Sports Illustrated and kind of moving in a different direction. The thing about books, I love writing books. Like I love writing books. Mm-hmm. The thing is you have to be self-motivated because they basically leave you alone. In my world, what it is, you sign a book deal and it's basically, all right, see you in two years, <laughs> deliver it in two years. So you have to be self-motivated. Uh, you have to be driven. You have to be able to set your own deadlines. You, you, you know, some people just need someone telling them this is due at this date. You got to learn to set your own deadlines. And also you, you, you become obsessed with a topic beyond any normal obsession. You know, you do a magazine story, you do a blog post, topic comes, topic goes. If I'm doing a book about the Lakers, well, I'm thinking about the Lakers nonstop for two yeah. years and I want to know everything. And it, it is a mental drain and everyone around you, like my wife does not need to hear about the Lakers again. My kids <laughs> don't need to hear about the Lakers anymore. So it's great. It's an awesome way to make a living, but you do have to steal yourself for a different uh, experience. Yeah. And I, like I said, I kind of envision myself doing fiction. You know, I grew up reading sports books. Um, I feel like that's a completely different, you know, ball game just cause you're kind of creating your own story. But you know what? I will say this. The best fiction is well-researched. If yeah. you read really good works of fiction, you can tell the difference between well-researched fiction and just throwing it out there fiction. And, you know, the uh, I just read a great book, fiction, about a hockey player. It's called The Mighty Oak. It was one of the best books I've read in a long time. And it was fiction. It was about a, a worn-down hockey player. But the thing is, everything he, – he researched CTE and its impact on hockey players. He researched the different rinks. He researched, you know, bleeding and blah, 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 and injuries. So – the best fiction is as well researched as the best nonfiction. Yeah, it's very true. Uh, you mentioned the Lakers. Your wife doesn't need to hear you talk about the Lakers anymore. Uh, I was doing some digging, and I saw you said in an, another interview that your Showtime book, you wrote a book about the Showtime Lakers, that kind of inspired you to kind of use this one as a sequel, kind of a continuation, continuity. Um, you know, what made you kind of pick the Lakers again? You kind of already dove into that world once. Um, besides that, you know, sequel, was there just something extra compelling about Kobe, Shaq and Phil that made you do this? I mean, when you're writing books, um, you often get asked, who are the characters a book hangs on? You know, mm-hmm. like a publishing house wants to know, well, who are the characters who are going to draw people in? 
And a lot of times that's a real problem. Like if you're, you're like, I want to do a book about the 1990s Cleveland Indians. <laughs> well, who's drawing me in? Who's, I don't know, you know, Sandy Alomar? No. With this book, you really have three huge guys. You really do. You have Kobe, obviously. You have Shaq, obviously. You have Phil, obviously. And then you have all these fascinating other characters. So I'm always looking. One of the things I definitely look for more than teams are characters and mm-hmm. personas, people who, are, who fascinate readers. So that was a big part of it for me. And also, um, when Magic Johnson retired in 91, it was a very abrupt ending. It was HIV. And mm-hmm. He held a press conference, and that was it. And that's kind of how my book ended, abruptly, too. And it's just interesting how the Lakers resumed dominance so quickly, how they, yeah. they got Kobe in the draft, they signed Shaq that same year, and all of a sudden they're off and running again. I just thought it, it lent itself to a really good book. Yeah, so what was like the starting point then? Because in the description for the book, it says, uh, I believe, 96 to 2004. Do you start mm-hmm. the book talking about Magic's retirement? Uh, does it start with Kobe being drafted, Shaq being signed? You know, what was kind of the starting point? All right, so interestingly... I started with the season before Kobe and Shaq came because Magic Johnson came back that year. Oh, yeah. It was 1995, and he came back. And the comeback sucked. It just didn't. <laughs> it was supposed to be great, but it wasn't great. And it was like, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, are you considered a millennial at 21? You're 21. Are you a millennial? I don't. I'm younger than a millennial, I think. What are you? What I is don't, your generation? Gen Z, whatever it's called. I don't even know. I think I'm just in between. <laughs> All right. So, like, Magic Johnson coming back to the Lakers in 95 was the equivalent of me complaining about millennials. I'm 48 and being like, (laughs) these millennials, I can't do it, which I do say every now and then, like he didn't want to deal with Nick Van Exel and Eddie Jones and whiny players and like ungrateful players and players who didn't see him as good. It's a super messy return that just didn't work out at all because he didn't get it. It was the wrong generation. He was an eighties guy thrown into this weird mid nineties thing. And I started with that because it actually felt like a jump from he retires. All right, he's back. It's a complete mess. He retires again. And then we're off into Kobe and Shaq. So it actually was a kind of a cool segue. It almost felt like I finished that book, took a little vacation, came back and started up at another interesting point. That's a crazy timeline, too, when you think about it. You know, I haven't really thought about it in that context. Like, we were one year away from, let's say, you know, Magic's HIV thing happens a year later, and he comes back four years later, and it's 96. You know, we're one year away from Magic playing with Kobe and Shaq. You know, Kobe obviously isn't Kobe yet, but you don't think of him. You don't even think of him like that. It's a fascinating, I feel like you could do a really good book. I'm not going to do it because I just wrote it, but about <laughs> just about 1996 and 1996 alone, like you said, Magic's a Laker. Magic comes back. It's huge. His comeback was huge. People forget how huge it was. It was enormous. It was a gigantic story and he played well. He actually did play well. Then he retires. Then they pull all the mechanisms to get Kobe, which he, they never should have been able to get, but they got him. <laughs> then they signed Shaq away, you know, he, Everyone thought he was going to go back to Orlando. They work all this magic, Jerry West. And it's all in this one crazy calendar year. It's a great, I agree with you. It's a crazy little time period. Yeah, that's wild to think about. Um, you know, so that's kind of the starting point. Who was the starting point in terms of who you interviewed for the book? Who was the first person you sat down with and you talked about? That's interesting. I don't remember the first. I mean, I got, um, so Dale Harris was a coach in 96 when those guys were drafted. I got him very early. I flew to Dallas, met with him. Uh, I sat down with Rick Fox pretty early in L.A. Um, I don't remember who first was. What I what I tend to do, I like to kind of report chronologically. Mm-hmm. And I was really into Kobe's first summer league experience. So he was on their summer league team in 96 after he's drafted. So I started finding all the guys who played on that summer league team. So there were a lot of guys you would have never heard of. 
mm-hmm. guys like David Booth from DePaul, you know, <laughs> um, and you'd never know about them, but they all had these great stories about Kobe as this really obnoxious and hard to deal with summer league player, because all he wanted to do was shoot the ball and he wouldn't pass. And all these guys are in summer league trying to prove they're worthy of a in- invitation to training camp, but it's hard to prove your worth when the guy won't give you the ball. Yeah. <laughs> so it actually, it was really fascinating. It's a really fascinating little period. It's not Kobe's first summer league in Long Beach. Yeah, hand up. I had uh, never heard of David Booth before. Uh, if you would have said his name, I would have thought it was the guy who murdered Abe Lincoln. Uh, that's John Wilkes Booth, uh, though. Well, I had to Google it. This is cousin, David Booth. <laughs> um, so you know your other books. You know, you've written about other dynasties. You talked about uh, the 90s Cowboys were one of them. Um, just how did the how did the Showtime and the Showtime Lakers, how did these Lakers compare to those other dynasties? How are they similar? How are they different? Because they kind of were, I mean, unless you count the Warriors, they kind of were NBA's last dynasty. I think we can count the Warriors, though, don't you? Uh, yeah, I guess three and four counts. I mean, Not a three-peat. Good, yeah. <laughs> um, do you hate the Warriors? No, I uh, I worked in a sports store uh, right out of high school, and I've never seen yeah. so many bandwagon Warriors fans, so I have a little bit of resentment yeah. towards like the 15-year-old Warriors fan out there listening to this. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. Um, I'm with you 1 million percent on that, but... Uh, <laughs> It's hard not to respect like Steph Curry, you know, oh, yeah. times. those guys are hard in there. Um, it's interesting. So I've written, it's almost like a generational thing that like, I wrote a book about the, uh, like the nineties Cowboys you mentioned. Right? Mm-hmm. And I wrote a book about the Showtime Lakers and those two dynasties. There was a lot of womanizing. There was a lot of drinking. There was definitely drugs, yeah. you know, modern players. It's different. Like, this generation, and, and I still consider the Shaq Kobe era still a kind of modern era to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. You couldn't go out nearly as much because people were starting to have phones and they, they would see you and they'd take your picture and it would go, you know, it, it wasn't going to go on Twitter yet, but there were mediums now to get it out there very quickly. Yeah. Deadspin comes along, you know, Slam Online comes along and all of a sudden you have to be really careful. The other thing is these players were making so much money during this last era that, you know, if you were... Back in the 80s, you weren't making that much money. Yeah. And now you come along and like you're making real money. And the idea of putting it at risk because you're getting drunk at a bar or you're being seen snorting coke with a hooker or whatever the case, like it just wasn't generational for the, it wasn't conducive to the modern generation. Yeah. You know? So I think the main thing is the main difference as far as teams go is they weren't going out nearly as much together. They certainly weren't going out public as much together. They're much more guarded about their personas. I mean, in a way, Shaq is a rare exception. Shaq is a guy yeah. who'd be out there he'd be hanging out, he'd be partying. But most of those guys were very protective. So it's different. It's different. What about the similarities? You know, it's kind of uh, trivial and, you know, some would say it's nonsense. But is there like a championship, you know, formula, something similar with all these teams where you saw in those Lakers that you saw in other teams that kind of led to their success? Uh, yeah. I mean, the first outside one, of talent. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, the first one by far is talent. Yeah. Like, <laughs> say what you want. The Lakers had two of the five best players in the NBA yeah. in their starting lineup, and Shaq was the most dominant player in the NBA. So, yeah. And then you add a coach who just knew how to win. You know, um, So talent's number one. I think number two is, uh, is ego. Like I think about those Magic Johnson Lakers. They just thought they were better than the other teams. And I think about Michael Irvin with the Cowboys in the 90s. Like he – he didn't think anyone could get in his way. Emmett Smith was the same way. No one's going to mm-hmm. stop me. I'm the best player in football. And I think Kobe certainly, Shaq certainly, they just believed they were better. Like, 
Sacramento, when, Sac- when Sacramento and the Lakers were having those wars, mm-hmm. the Kings players thought they could beat the Lakers. The Laker players knew they were going to beat the Kings. Yeah. And there's a difference there. You know, like Paige Stoyakovic, Chris Webber, they really thought they could beat the Lakers. And the Lakers knew they were not going to lose to the Kings. That's a yeah. huge difference. Yeah, and I think we still see that nowadays, too. You know, it would be a little topical. Uh, just saw the Los Angeles Clippers uh, lay a goose egg, you know, in the second round. Paul uh, Paul George afterwards saying they didn't view it as title or bust this year. Um, that's yeah. kind of like, you know, the opposite of that. It's almost like they didn't have as much confidence, maybe as much, you know, drive. I don't know if they were looking past the Nuggets, looking for the Lakers. Um, but it's different. I, I wouldn't have ever heard Kobe say that. You'd never hear Kobe say this wasn't title or bust. So No, never. You wouldn't. And say what you want about LeBron. You wouldn't hear LeBron say it. And I will say, I get it. Like, I actually do get it. As a human, I mean, COVID is a is a – it's a head screw, you know, yeah. it is a head screw. Everything going on right now, playing in a bubble is a head. You miss your family. You miss your life. You just want to get back to wherever it's, it's different. So I'm not, I don't think it's fair to kill Paul George for expressing that. But I think you can admire players who fight through that and battle yeah. through it. And I mean, Kobe, look at Kobe. In 2004, 2003, 2004, Kobe was flying back and forth to Eagle, Colorado on a sexual assault case where he was in court during the day would fly, would take a 20-minute nap, would play. Um, he wasn't sure if he was coming back to the Lakers. He thought he was coming back to the Clippers. Nothing was going right that year. He hated Shaq. He hated Phil. And he still freaking came to play all the time. Yeah. He was pretty freaking badass. Yeah, that's Kobe, you know, generational talent. That's why. Uh, you mentioned, you know, briefly about them going out. You know, you can't go out because the social media era. This was still in that in the beginning of that. Um, and how these other teams kind of had that luxury to do that, and they kind of had more, you know, chemistry togetherness as a result. Uh, do you think that kind of impacted the Kobe Shaq dynamic? I mean, they're two completely different people. They're both dogs at the end of the day, but Kobe was that hard worker, and Shaq was that guy who worked hard, you know, when he had to. Um, do you think if they would have came up, you know, 10, 20 years earlier, they could have had a closer, you know, relationship than they did? I don't, because I don't think they were, I just, they weren't even nearly the same people, like not even close. It's like, uh, you've had coworkers or people in school or whatever who you just don't like. And I could say to you, well, if you came along 20 years earlier, would you like that person? Like, (laughs) no, I I would never like that person. We all have people like that. I would never like that person. That person wouldn't like me. And I, I got to say like Kobe, it's weird because obviously he died and this book is coming out and Mm -hmm. sort of, it's awkward. Um, He was a pain in the ass. Like he was a pain in the ass and his drive was so off the charts and his determination was so off the charts and all he wanted to do is win and humiliate you. Like those are his goals. And you know, his first playoffs, he shoots four air balls and a loss to Utah. That just destroys him. Right. A lot of players, that's it for them. Like yeah. that's it for them. They are remembered for the rest. It was, there's another universe, a parallel universe where Kobe Bryant is remembered for those four air balls, never recovers and winds up a journeyman playing in Vancouver, you know, yeah. like, it's hard to recover, but he was so freaking steely and so driven. And his reaction to those kind of things was F that, just F that. I'm coming back and I'm coming back stronger. And he did not, he just couldn't relate to a guy like Shaq who's like, <laughs> all right, season's over. I'm going to go eat cheeseburgers, float on a raft in my pool, drink beers and smoke cigars. Shaq couldn't relate to the guy who didn't want to. Shaq's like, I spent all year, all season working my ass off. I get pounded. People are throwing triple teams at me. I'm physically decimated. I want to go in my pool now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you didn't understand how you wouldn't feel that way. And I actually, 
I kind of get both sides of that. I don't think either guy was wrong. They just it was speaking different languages. Yeah, absolutely. And their relationship is still one of the most you know interesting NBA stories of the last twenty years. Uh, you've covered other interesting interesting uh, you know storylines. Barry Bonds, he's polarizing. Uh, the Bad Boy Mets, I mean, they have hundreds of stories to talk about. Uh, and then even, you yep. know, one of your more recent books, the USFL and, you know, our president's involvement in that league. Um, how does their dynamic, their relationship, you know, that kind of storyline just compare to these other, you know, kind of crazy storylines from other sports? It's really interesting because um, I wrote this book and I went into it very adamant. It was not going to become a Shaq Kobe book. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not a Shaq Kobe book. This is a book about an era a franchise and all these, I like, I wanted it to be as much Nick Van Exel is here and Eddie Jones is here. Mm-hmm. And here's Rick Fox and here's Robert Ori and here's Derek Fisher. But it was like those two guys were this, they were like a planet and you could not escape the gravitational force of that planet. And yeah. I, I'd be talking to Rick Fox. I met with Rick at a Starbucks in LA and I'm talking to him and it's great, but it always comes back to Shaq and Kobe or you'll, you'll be talking to Glenn Rice and it always comes back to Shaq and Kobe. <laughs> and it's, it, number one, because it's really fascinating. And number two, because a lot of these guys existed in a way like their existence is fed off of Shaq and Kobe. So like Rick Fox, one of his jobs was to mediate mm-hmm. Shaq and Kobe. Brian Shaw, one of his jobs was to mediate Shaq and Kobe. It was all about sort of how can we make this relationship as salvageable as possible and as smooth as possible. I mean, they brought in a ton. They made a trade when they made the Glenn Rice trade with Charlotte. They sent Eddie Jones to Charlotte. They got Glenn Rice back. Mm-hmm. And they also got on that deal uh, a veteran journeyman forward named J.R. Reed, who used to play in North Carolina. Oh, that's a great name coming from Jason yeah, Reed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, and he uh, he was good. He was a great, before your time, he was a great player at UNC. And he was a journeyman. And he comes in, and Jerry West sees that he's sort of savvy and whatever, and he pulls him aside one day, and he's like, can you talk to Kobe? I would just, can you try taking Kobe under your wing? I would really appreciate that if you could... The number of times Jerry West said that to someone, can you talk to Kobe? Can you talk to Kobe? Can you just try working with Kobe? And it just became this thing over. And I'll tell you one more thing. Like um, one of my favorite moments in the book, just because it's so telling it's uh 2003, 2004 season. Carl Malone is now with the, with the Lakers, mm-hmm. legendary jazz forward. And um, Kobe, it's the day before Thanksgiving and all the players are leaving. And Carl Malone spots Kobe walking out of the locker room and he goes, Yo, young buck, come here. He calls Kobe over and he whispers something into his ear. You got to do this, blah, 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 blah. And Kobe goes player to player and wishes them a happy Thanksgiving. Hey, have a great Thanksgiving. Have a great. Like, he needed someone to tell him, Yeah. you need to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know, like little things like that. He just needed veterans to kind of guide him along. So it's an interesting buffet of veterans, but they all come back to Kobe and Shaq. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you get a chance to talk to Kobe, you know, before his, you know, untimely passing sadly sadly no i got Shaq. i got phil kobe had just come out with the mamba mentality mm-hmm. um the book he wrote which actually is very interesting and, and well done and um my guess i mean i was told early on he wouldn't talk i think part of it is probably he was promoting his own book part of it is eagle colorado hangs over that whole era and the sexual assault allegations yeah and i think he probably he didn't really talk about it very much ever and you know, if you're doing a book on that era, that's one of the topics. So I yeah. never got him. You'd be doing a, a disservice to not talk about it, you know. So you have to. Yeah, you have to. You have to. Was is you know you didn't get to talk to him, but is there any new wrinkles about Kobe? You know, because Laker fans are kind of clutching on to these oh, yeah. stories, these new stories that are coming out. Are there new wrinkles that fans can kind of look forward to and be excited for? 
Oh yeah. I mean, his, um, his arrival in LA, just his, he should have been a New Jersey net mm-hmm. by all reasons. He should have been a New Jersey net. And the one guy, there's one guy who the Laker fans should thank and net fans should hate. And it's uh, John Calipari. So <laughs> Cal was the coach of the New Jersey nets in mm-hmm. 1996, right? Yeah. He was in his first year, he was the coach in the nets. And as part of his contract, he signed a five-year deal and he had final personnel say the GM of the nets was John Nash. He's, they made a decision drafting Kobe Bryant, the eighth pick. There's drafting Kobe. Well, behind the scenes, Jerry West is because he he worked out Kobe and he loved Kobe. He saw Kobe. He said Kobe had the best workout of any players they've ever worked out. Wow. And he desperately wants Kobe Bryant. And he starts talking to Leonard Amato, Kobe's agent, and they kind of devise this plan, which is to convince the Nets not to draft Kobe, right? <laughs> and. Like, they don't want the next because Leonard Amato wants his guy in L.A. thinks L.A. is a great place to be. Kobe had just agreed to a sneaker deal with Adidas for a ton of money to promote it. He, want, he wanted to be – he wanted Kobe to be this thing, like almost like a Will Smith of basketball kind of thing. Yeah. So the Nets are ready to draft Kobe Bryant. It's all done. We are drafting Kobe Bryant. This is a day of the draft, 1996. We're drafting Kobe Bryant. And um, Leonard Amato, Kobe's agent um, – I mean, Arm Tellum, Kobe's agent, mm-hmm. calls Annette and says, calls John Calipari and says, if you draft Kobe, he's going to go to Italy for the year. He won't play for you. <laughs> and Calipari's like, oh, shit, what the hell, what the hell, what the hell? And he tells it to general manager. And the general manager's like, listen, he's bluffing. There's no way he's going to Italy. That's preposterous. He's not going to play in Italy. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and then Kerry Kittles' his agent, Kerry Kittles out of Villanova, his agent calls John Calipari and says, if you guys don't draft my client, if he's there in number eight, I will never have another guy sign with you. And Calipari, <laughs> who's, again, young, naive, is like, oh, my God, oh, shit, what the hell, what the hell? John Nash is like, listen, man, calm down. This, this is all <laughs> bluffing. This is how it works. No, I don't know. The Nets are ready to draft Kobe. They're going to draft Kobe. They have this meeting right before the draft. Calipari, again, who has way too much power for someone his age in the <laughs> NBA, makes an announcement. He says, if Kerry Kittles is there at number eight, we're taking Kerry Kittles. If he's not there, we're taking Kobe Bryant. Of course, number eight comes along. Kerry Kittles from Villanova is there. <laughs> the Nets draft Kerry Kittles. Jerry West is in L.A. just doing every jig you can imagine. <laughs> they trade with Charlotte. They send Vladi Divac to Charlotte. Charlotte with the 13th pick takes Kobe Bryant, and the rest is history. It's crazy. I mean, it's crazy all the what-ifs you can make. I mean, things that didn't happen that could have happened. Things, you know, it's just imagine Wait, Kobe as a Net. <laughs> think of it this way, okay? Kobe goes to the Nets. The Nets suck. He probably starts at shooting guard. He probably shoots about 32%. He's hucking up every ball imaginable. Yeah. He probably averages 27 a game but and wins rookie of the year. He's playing for this crappy franchise for this terrible NBA coach, John Calipari. It is easy to see Kobe Bryant having a Carmelo Anthony career yeah. in that timeline. You know what I mean? Where he's just a really good scorer who doesn't win. And Shaq, meanwhile, is paired with maybe he's paired with Kerry Kittles. Maybe the <laughs> Lakers are just a really good team, but not great. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens. And John Calipari is never the coach at Kentucky. He probably stays Nets coach and all this crazy stuff. So that one moment in time, you know. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Carmelo. The first name that came to mind for me was uh, Russell Westbrook. I mean, the player profiles aren't similar, but, you know, he did yeah. come into a good situation, but then he kind of became this Max guy who wasn't winning and he put up great numbers and people love him for his drive and his athleticism. But, you know, Kobe easily could have become that generation's Russell Westbrook, you know? 
So well, that's you think about it. People people praise Kobe's work ethic, and they should because he worked his ass off. Yeah, but he really wanted to score as a young player. Like his yeah. thing was, I want to shoot the ball, and it is easy to see he could have been the hardest working ball hog in NBA history. And if he was never paired with a legit center and under a legit NBA coach, he could have been. He could have been Westbrook or Dominique Wilkins or Carmelo Anthony or just a really good scorer who goes in the Hall of Fame but never has a ring or spin zone. When MJ came back, they could have partnered together. Could have got Kobe MJ on the same team. <laughs> um, that would have been funny. Yeah. Speaking of uh, MJ, did you get a chance to talk to Phil for the book? I think you mentioned actually you did. Um, is he the same? I got eight hours. Oh, eight nice. Hours. Eight hours? Yeah. What is eight hours with Montana. Phil Jackson like? Is he the same hippie guy like, that we saw in the last dance? <laughs> yeah, he was. He was. It was like um, I said this to my wife afterwards, and I repeated the line. It was like I'm some guy who won, like there's some raffle for charity. And one of the prizes is like <laughs> spend a day with Phil Jackson and it costs you like a hundred thousand dollars and some yeah. corporate douchebag makes a donation. But I actually won that prize. <laughs> it was, um, he was great. I flew out to Montana, met him in a coffee shop. I thought I would get an hour with him. He's like, yeah, I thought I'd drive you around a lake. All right. It's a three hour lake. We're driving around the lake. We stopped for lunch. He's like, you want to go back to my house? All right. We go back to his house. We hang out at his house. Um, He's like, I'm gonna take a nap. You want to grab dinner later? <laughs> okay, we go out for dinner. It was, it was, it was one of the reasons I become a journalist. Became a journalist is from moments and experiences like that. It was killer. Yeah, that's crazy. Just eight hours with Phil Jackson. That sounds like any Laker fan's dream. <laughs> it was great, and he was cool. He was a really legitimately nice human being. I got to say, like, forget basketball. He was just a gracious host and a really nice guy to be around. So, how many quotes, Phil quotes, do you have? Is like twenty pages of the book, just all his quotes? <laughs> no, you know, the thing is, like. Uh, a lot of times when you do these interviews, it's a lot of it is just providing context and background and understanding. Yeah. And so it's not like you just go quote, quote, quote. A lot of times you're getting information and you're just using it to build the narrative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the Lakers, like I said, they were kind of the last, uh, I said the last dynasty, but we got to respect the Warriors as much as I despise that 15-year-old Warriors fan out there. Uh, sorry about that. Um, it's all right. Do you think another NBA team, you know, can complete the three-peat? The Lakers were the last ones. Uh the Warriors, the Almighty Warriors couldn't even do it. Do you see with this new NBA, you know, team movement, player movement, do you see another team kind of getting a three-peat? I mean, I feel like if LeBron were a little bit younger, it'd be, it'd be easier to see a possibility of a Lakers doing it. It's hard to see LeBron being dominant like he is now still in two years. I mean, you never know. It's just, you know what the difference is, is um, coaches have very little power now and executives have very little power now. Yeah. So, the players have all the power, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's much harder to construct and build and maintain. Like, I look back, you know, before your time a bit, but like when Red Auerbach was building the Boston Celtics of the 80s, it was piece by piece. It was Larry Bird, and we get Kevin McHale, and we get Robert Parrish. And we're going to build this thing. When the Lakers with Magic, all right, we have Kareem, we're going to draft Magic, and then we're going to sign Michael Cooper as a rookie free agent. We're gonna, you know, like, yeah. it was construction. It was building piece by piece. And now... Like you're the Lakers, the most powerful person there isn't Jeannie Buss. As much as I love Jeannie Buss, it's not Frank Bofogo. As much as I respect Frank Vogel, it's LeBron. Yeah. And if LeBron is like, I don't really like how this is going. Frank Vogel isn't a coach for us. This isn't going to work. You have to listen to him. Yeah. So it's just harder when you when the control isn't with the organization to ask an organization to build. So I think it certainly can happen, um, but it's not easy. Not as easy. Yeah, it's going to take something like. The Lakers winning this year, winning next year, and then getting Giannis or something. It's going to take something like that. I just, 
I feel like the Warriors, I mean, they kind of did that piece-by-piece piece thing that you mentioned, but, I mean, even they couldn't do it. You know, winning three titles in a row is hard. I mean, we saw those Lakers teams. They almost didn't win three titles in a row. So Yeah. You know what the other thing is, is like um, people would admit this later on. They don't admit it at the time, but they admit it later on. Like after a team wins a third title in a row, they'll get the questions. Is this as sweet as the first? Oh, this is the sweetest. This is the best. But it's actually not. There's nothing like the first time. There's nothing like yeah. the first time with getting a cool car. There's nothing like the first time with having sex. There's nothing with the first time. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing like the first time. Like the first time and interviewing Jeff Perlman. <laughs> there you go. You know, or being on the show. Like there's just. There's nothing like the first time you do something and it gets harder and harder to stay motivated. And it's kind of the story of Shaq. Like yeah. he's hyper motivated for that first one. He was super motivated for the second one. And the third one was kind of a little bit of a push, you know, and <laughs> just you've done it before and other people are hungry to take what you have. So it's, it's tough. People, it's never sweet the third time. I don't care what anyone says. It's never sweet. The repeat is never sweet as the first time. Never. Mm-hmm. Would you say, I mean, this isn't really on the book, but would you say they cared more about, you know, Shaq's fourth title and then Kobe's fourth and fifth? Would you say they probably cared more about those titles than they did, you know, the third of the three-peat? Yeah, I think definitely. I think for Shaq, um, winning in Miami was, actually, I think for both those guys, it was kind of redemption. You Mm -hmm. know, for Shaq, it was like, screw you, I can win without Kobe. Then he does a famous uh, rap verse, you know, (laughs) how's my ass taste about Kobe? You know, like... It was basically middle finger to Kobe Bryant. And yeah. I can do this without you. And Kobe, I mean, say what you want about Kobe. When Shaq leaves and Phil leaves and Rudy Tomjanovich is a coach, and it looks like they just got crumbs for Shaq. It's like Karan Butler, and, <laughs> you know, Mar Odom. And you're just like, this, you know, his coming back to win titles is a freaking hardcore redemption story of a guy who really did will that franchise on his back. He did not want his legacy to be a number two just to be the number two guy to Shaq. Yeah. And it was a really impressive. I mean, those teams were not all-time great teams. Yeah. But his leadership and his willingness to carry him was off the charts. So I kind of have a uh, just a fun little question to ask you. Since you wrote about uh, the Showtime Lakers and then this Lakers team, who wins in a two-on-two half-court game? Magic and Kareem from the 80s or Kobe and Shaq from the three-peat team? You could pick any year. Uh, if we're two-on-two... I think Kobe, Shaq. Um, I don't really see how. I mean, Kareem had the sky hook. Shaq could not block it. Shaq outweighed Kareem by whatever fifty pounds, you know. And yeah, Kobe was much quicker than Magic. And Magic didn't have an outside really much of a jumper. So I think in a two on two game. But I think if you played five on five, if you played Ash, I think the show at their best might be the best basketball team ever. Yeah. So. Yeah, there was one year I think they went, what, like 65 and 17. They were just all the advanced stats say it's like the best team ever. Um, I don't know, maybe LeBron and AD. Does LeBron and AD beat either of them two-on-two? No. I don't think so. I mean, they're great. They're great, but I don't don't think so. Do you? No. No way. I'm young and I'm naive, but I'm not that naive. Um, Yeah. So 2020, you know, we kind of mentioned it. You mentioned with Paul George, uh, just COVID, everything going on with the bubble and everything. Are you looking at these COVID-related seasons, whether it's basketball, MLB, any of them? Are you just kind of like licking your chops like, man, this is going to make a great book in five to ten years? <laughs> yeah, but it won't be a book for me to write. I've been I've been telling – I told my agent this, and I told a couple of NBA writers who are covering it from the bubble. There's a great book to be written about life in the bubble. But I think you have to be an NBA writer who's in the bubble to really capture it. So I, I actually think of all the sports, the NBA is by far the most interesting because they've handled it really well. It's kind of fascinating. And 
the players are fascinating here. There are a lot of great names to hang it on. I don't think with baseball because it, it just doesn't seem like people care. <laughs> it just doesn't. It doesn't seem that people are that invested in this baseball season. And hockey barely exists to me. I, I didn't even know they were playing until a couple of days ago. <laughs> um, but there, don't you think there was a great NBA book waiting to be written on this season? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've already seen like the vlogs, uh, Matthias Thibel, uh, Javale McGee, and those are popping off. I mean, maybe that's the next book. It's just a bunch of pages maybe. of like vlog scenes. Um, I just think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. I think. The NBA has pulled something off. I mean, give all respect to the NBA on this one. Like, yeah. have, it's not – it doesn't feel as meaningful to me as a full regular season. Like, I don't want to lie. It doesn't. But it still feels meaningful, and that's yeah. pretty freaking impressive. Yeah, because baseball, it's the 60 games, you know. People are already saying it's an asterisk. If the Dodgers win, since I'm a Dodger fan, legitimate championship. Any other team, it's not. Um, not and then funny. football, we'll see if they even finish the season at this point. But basketball, I mean, they've done a crazy thing, a great thing. Um, but since you're punting on basketball, is there any, if you could pick any team from the last five years, it could be any sport, you know, college, professional, any athlete, you know, to write a book on, like, what's the first idea that comes to mind? The last five years? Yeah. I mean, somewhere out there, without question, there's a really, really, really good LeBron biography waiting to be written. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be written when his career ends. But what a fascinating, I mean, LeBron's a fascinating he really is. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not even saying that. I'm not like a LeBron fan or not a fan, but like if you look at him developing his voice, building a school, um, campaigning for presidential candidates, tweeting angrily at Trump, jumping from team to team, sort of the question of his let here at the transition of sort of the powers going from the organizations to the players. I mean, he's the number one guy when it comes to a player getting power. Oh yeah, having his own business having his own tv shows he is a truly truly historic and fascinating sports figure and i think somewhere along the line after he retires there's a great book to be written maybe by me who knows maybe by you yeah i was about to say maybe that'll be my uh, my debut <laughs> great go for it man i'll support you um final question everyone be sure to uh, pre-order or purchase uh, the three ring circus a uh, great book for any laker fan out there my final question for you since we're the Lake Show Life podcast, you know, we're talking about the NBA playoffs right now. Uh, I just want to know, who do you have winning the NBA championship? Can the Lakers make it number 17? I want to say two things. Number one, Let's don't you feel like you and I, we could have made a lot of money if we, at the beginning of the season, bet on Heat Nuggets as a possible <laughs> NBA championship? Yeah. Imagine <laughs> the money we could have made. Imagine that's insane. Yeah. And uh, I think those two organizations, I really mean this, like, could these guys have done a better job? I mean, those are not the two most talented teams in the NBA. And I mean, the Nuggets especially, like they really got it together. And they're yeah. a fun, you know, like I think Laker fans are like, this is great. We're going to play the Nuggets. I wouldn't. They're good. Yeah, they are and good. They're good. So that being said, I do think the Lakers are going to win the title. Um, I just do. I think the force of LeBron, I think Anthony Davis is a ridiculously talented player. Kind of, And what I love about the Lakers, what I really love about the Lakers is Frank Vogel decides in the last series we need we can't we're not going big we can't go big mm-hmm. right so he doesn't play many minutes Dwight Howard doesn't play many minutes and they're totally fine with it yeah they just roll with it and that is very unusual for a lot of modern athletes and I just think they feel like a very kindred spirit team so I do I think I would not be that would be my pick if someone said who's going to win the championship. I think it'll be a Lakers-Celtics series, and I think the Lakers will win. That'd be awesome. I'm just happy I don't listen yeah. to my uh, dumb brain because a few months ago, uh, before COVID and everything, I was considering betting like a thousand dollars on the Clippers and a thousand dollars on the Bucks just to win their conference. Um, being, you know, pessimistic Laker fan. 
and yep. I would have been down two thousand dollars. So <laughs> wait, I'm out. I need to ask you a question here. Yes, let's hear it. All right, so I grew up. My favorite teams growing up. My favorite team in any sport was the New York Jets. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm 48. Exactly. I'm 48. <laughs> they have never appeared in a Super Bowl in my lifetime. Literally, have never appeared in a Super Bowl. Not one. Mm-hmm. What the hell do you have to be pessimistic about as a Laker fan? Like I have reason. Like my team <laughs> sucks. What are you pessimistic about? Well, I'm gonna be honest, and I might expose myself a little bit here to uh, the Lake Show Life listeners. Um, I have not always been a Laker fan. So growing up, I kind of grew up a little bit past Kobe. I mean, Kobe was still in his prime, but I didn't really get into basketball until like 2007, 2008. It's crazy. I was only nine, 10 years old. Um, mm-hmm. So I was a LeBron guy and I liked the Lakers though. I said I was a Laker fan, but then my friends in elementary school told me you can't like LeBron more than Kobe and be a Laker fan. So I was like, okay, I'm not a Laker fan then screw this. I'm going to be just a LeBron fan. So then I kind of just drifted, you know, endlessly with no team. And then eventually a man by the name of Lonzo Ball came along. Uh, he went to high school at Chino Hills. Uh, I have family in Chino who actually don't know him, but, you know, played against him and whatnot. And he was the first kind of athlete to graduate with me into the NBA. So I became a huge Lonzo fan. And then LeBron came. And then I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm back, baby. I'm a Laker fan again. So kind of, you know, fair weather, but I came a year early. So, you know, I was forecasting that good. But Lonzo's gone say, now. <laughs> I think it's funny how we have these rules, right? These rules. You can't be, <laughs> you can't be a, you can't be a Laker fan, but like LeBron more than Kobe. Like, like in my world, right? If you're from New York, you can't be. You can be a Jet fan, but you can't be a Jet fan and a Yankee fan. You have to be a Jet fan and a Met fan and an Islanders fan. You can't be a. Yeah. It goes either. It goes either Yankees, Rangers, Knicks, um, or Giants, or the opposite, mm-hmm. right? You can't cross. And it's like, that's a rule. So you got to abide by that rule. But who said? Like, where'd yeah. that come from? It's the, thing ever. it's the same way in LA, though. I mean, Dodger fans are all either Ram fan or Raider fans. Uh, and it's right. always like the little brothers, like the Angel fans are the Clipper fans, you know, are the Charger fans. Unfortunately, I'm a Charger fan. But um, wow. Yeah. They barely exist in LA. Yeah. We're like the seventh most popular team <laughs> in the city of Los Angeles. Um, that was a terrible move. But anyway, yeah. I appreciate you coming on, Jeff. Uh, yeah, was, thank you. It was a great talk. Again, everyone, remind, reminder, uh, buy Three Ring Circus. comes out September 22nd. I will be sure to be purchasing it. And then uh, I'm going to read it, take some notes, and then I'm going to be a New York Times bestseller. I'm going to top you on the charts for your next book. I'd be thrilled. I feel like I, I begat something big, so that, that I, I root for you. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Take me down. <laughs> yeah, take care. Thanks for having me on. I'll, I'll be balling every day.